Today's sermon comes from Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone else should rise from the dead. The magazine Vanity Fair uh, published an article a little less than a year ago, last December, on uh, actress Jessica Alba. And in this article, they talk about her, her view of God and her faith. And listen to this excerpt from the article. Alba's childhood was marked by two things, illnesses that landed her in the hospital often, and a burning desire to leave a mark on the world, which at the age of 12 meant becoming a devout, born-again Christian. I was seeking a purpose, Alba, Alba says, of her years as a member of a conservative Christian youth group. I wanted to exist for a reason. This lasted until she was 17, when she says she was turned off by the boundaries and labels set by fellow churchgoers. That year, she attended an acting workshop in Vermont and, quote, fell crazy in love with a cross-dressing ballet dancer who had a baby and was bisexual. She said, I was like, there's no way he's going to hell, exclamation point. Acting opened her to a new world of creative people in a community where she belonged. And then she said this, quote, I felt like at the end of the day, God is love and everyone is human. You see, her, her conclusion that, that hell and God's love are in opposition, that are a great contradiction, is, is a very common view. It may be a view that you have this morning of this seeming contradiction between God's love and hell. And yet what we see in this parable is that Jesus presents a very different position in fact, what Jesus is, is describing here and trying to teach here is that you can't actually understand God's love unless you understand the doctrine of hell. So what does hell teach us? What does hell teach us? First, it teaches that you need a new name. Now, what was the main difference between the rich man and Lazarus? On the surface, it, it appears pretty easy. 
One was rich, one was poor. But that wasn't the main difference. You say, well, okay, one had a life of ease and comfort and one had a life of suffering. That's not the main difference either. The main difference between the rich man and Lazarus is that one had a name and one didn't. When Jesus tells his parables, it is very rare, very unique for him to actually give one of his characters in his parable a name. Usually it's just a father had two sons, a master had servants, right? But here he gives the poor man a name. His name's Lazarus. And this is, the key, this is the key point of the parable because if you miss this point, then it's very easy to interpret this as rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. Now, why? Here's the, the, the question. Why does the rich man go to hell and why does the poor man go to heaven? And the answer is because one had a name. The name that Jesus gives this poor man is Lazarus, and it means God's help, or God is my help. You see, what will send you to hell is not being rich or poor. Uh, it's not even committing overt sins or not committing overt sins. What will send you to hell is making anything but God your help. Making anything but God your help. You see, for this rich man who didn't have a name, his functional help was his wealth. It's what defined him. It's what gave him a, a sense of purpose. It's what gave him an identity. It was who he was. And for the poor man, Lazarus, his functional help was God. You see, the, the, the rich man, when he ends up dying, has nothing left. The poor man's functional help was God. And we see it in the parable, right? It says that the, the poor man, he desired to get scraps from the rich man's table, right? And, and the dogs that were outside the rich man's gate, you know, licked his sores. And it, and it seems like a kind of a pity party type description, but what's happening here is that the rich man would throw his food scraps out for his dogs, and that's how God fed the poor man. And, and the dog uh, licking his sores, obviously this, this poor man had disease and skin sores and a condition. Uh, and dogs had, their saliva had medicinal properties. They had healing properties. See, what's being described here is how God took care of this poor man through the rich man's scraps and through the dogs that were outside the gate. That this poor man was taken care of, that God was his help. You see, the real contrast between the rich man and the poor man is not the amount of money they had. It's that the rich man was full on the outside, but empty on the inside. And the poor man was empty on the outside, but full on the inside. The rich man was absolutely dependent on externals and circumstances for his identity and who he was and his sense of worth. And the poor man's inside, the core of who he was, wasn't dependent at all on externals or on circumstances. You say, now how do we know this? Because look at what happens at death. When both men die, what happens? This rich man's core, his inside that was empty, explodes into disintegration and pain. 
And yet this poor man who had nothing on the outside, his core, his inside that was full, exploded into joy and comfort. You see, the poor man was a real person. The rich man was a hollow man. He was a hollow man with nothing on the inside. And what we learn here is if you make anything but God your help, you become that thing and bear that nameless name. Let me give you an example, a couple examples here. If your children become your functional help, meaning that they are the ones that ultimately help you have an identity, help you have a sense of worth, help you be someone. If they are your functional help, then you don't have a self, you're hollow. If, you're, if your career becomes your functional help, if your career is what helps you become something that gives you some sort of meaning and purpose and that ultimately is where you get it from, then you don't have a real self, you're, you're hollow. If, if your functional help comes from being a, a, an athlete or a scholar, you don't have a real self. You're hollow on the inside. If your marriage becomes your functional help, you're a husband and a wife or a wife, but that's it. There's nothing on the inside. You see all these examples? If your children become your functional help, then you're nothing more than a mother or a father. If your career becomes your functional help, you're nothing more than a businesswoman, a successful businesswoman, right? If, if your athletics or your, your academics become your functional help, you're nothing more than a scholar athlete. <laughs> if your marriage becomes your functional help, you're nothing more than a husband or a wife. And when, and when those things get taken away via a child dies or rebels or uh, your marriage falls apart or you lose your job or you get cut from a team or you don't make the dean's list. When those things are taken away, there's nothing. There's nothing left because the hollow exterior is gone and there's a gaping hole inside. There's a gaping emptiness that begins to explode into disintegration and into pain. What Jesus is teaching here is that hell is just the ultimate destination. It's the trajectory of that kind of life. If anything but God is your functional help, you're living a nameless life of superficiality on the suburbs of hell. And God wants to give you a name. He wants to give you a new name. He says it in Isaiah chapter 62, verses one to three. For Zion's sake, listen to what God says. Listen to his heart. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. See, the new name that you get when you put your trust in Jesus, when you believe Jesus like Abraham did in the Old Testament, he believed that it was credited to him as righteousness. When you believe, when you put your trust in Jesus, you get a new name that is disconnected from externals and circumstances. It's a new identity that outlasts death and goes into eternity. 
Ravi Zacharias, he shares this story of two of his very good friends that had a real heart for um, these children that had been deformed at birth. And, and they ended up building an orphanage for these children where they could be taken care of and where they could as much as possible with medical help try to fix some of these birth defects. So they built this orphanage and, and then they, and they looked for families to adopt these children. And he describes the story how there was this, there was this one nine-year-old boy who had a particular uh, really, really harsh brain condition that caused him to not be able to connect thoughts. It was very rare. They couldn't, really, they couldn't do anything about it. And this boy kept getting looked over as families came to adopt in this orphanage. And they would come and adopt children. And, and it got to a point where this nine-year-old boy watched as families would come and take children away, and he was left. And he became despondent. And he became discouraged, and he asked those that were uh, over the orphanage, you know, why, why am I not getting chosen? Why is the family not choosing me? The story goes on. There was a, um, a family from Texas who had adopted a child from this orphanage already. And I, I would assume by the Lord's leading, they called back to the orphanage and they said, is that nine-year-old boy, has anybody taken him yet? I said, no. And so from this family's, the good heart of this family, and then the, the owners of the orphanage that, that agreed to pay for the adoption costs, they adopted this nine-year-old boy. And one of the thrilling parts of it was that he was going to be reunited with one of his housemates that was in this family. And so the story goes on. In between where uh, the family said, we're going to adopt him, and they came to pick him up, they, they chose a name for him because he had a name that was very hard to pronounce. It was normal in his native setting, but very hard to pronounce. So they gave him the name Anson Josiah, AJ. And they sent this name to the orphanage and to the orphan, uh, the ones over the orphanage. And, and they told this little nine-year-old boy his new name. And from the time that the parents, uh, between when the parents gave him his name and came to pick him up, they said he walked around this orphanage with his chest puffed out, telling everyone and pointing to his chest, I'm AJ. That's my new name. Who are you? Who are you? Are you just a mother? Are you just a father? Are you just a successful businesswoman? Are you just an athlete? Are you just a scholar? Or have you received the name from God? A new identity that is not connected to externals and circumstances in this world. The name that you will have for eternity that gives you a core on the inside that will outlast death, that defines who you are. Are you a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord? See, hell teaches us that we need a name, that we need a new name. We need a new identity. And second, hell teaches us that you get what you want. There are two important truths that Jesus teaches about hell in this passage. The first one is he describes what hell is. And he describes it as a place of disintegration. Now, verse 23, you'll notice the rich man describes being in torment. In verse 25, he describes being anguish in anguish in flames. 
And you say, why does Jesus describe hell using the imagery of fire? It's because fire breaks things down. When something goes into the fire, it doesn't disappear, it just loses its coherence. And it breaks into parts. Take a, a good, solid, coherent piece of wood, right? And you put it in the fire. And what happens? It loses its coherence. It breaks down into a pile of ash. Hell is a place where you break down. Hell is a place where the, the beginning work of sin comes to its fruition, and you break down because hell is a place where the common grace of God is removed. You know that everyone alive today, in this room, beyond in this world, that if you're alive today, you will remain somewhat intact. You'll be able to communicate, you'll be able to express love, um, you'll be able to have a coherent thought, right? And that's because God is holding you together regardless of what you believe about him. If you submit to him, if you don't believe him, if you don't believe Christianity, it doesn't matter. By nature of being alive in this world, you are held together somewhat by what's called the common grace of God. Hell is the place where God removes that common grace and you're no longer held together by him. And so the result is disintegration which is simply breaking down into parts with no coherent core. And that's what we see happening here to this rich man, that, that hell is sin's destroying work coming to fruition. That sin ultimately is a violation of design, that you were designed not for sin. And when you violate the design of something over a period of time, what happens? It gets destroyed. It breaks down. Uh, my, my buddy in high school, it's my junior year of high school, and he um, received a brand new 1988 black four-door Toyota Camry as a gift from his dad. And this was when it was like the new Camry body style in 88. It was a sharp car. It was a family sedan, four-door, but it had some sport to it. And, uh, and the instruction manual on a four-door family sedan doesn't tell you to drive it like a Ferrari. But this was what my buddy did. So I'd be in the passenger seat, and in his neighborhood, there were a lot of streets, and, 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 and he, would, he would drive this thing at breakneck speed, and he would take the corners squealing, um, and, he, and, and, and he would, he would uh, it was an automatic, so he would slam the gas, and it would downshift, and the RPMs would go to the red, and I mean, he just, he beat this thing up. And I was in it for a lot of the time he did and I'm still alive today. Do you know within one year, within a year, his tires wouldn't hold air because of the breakneck cornering he did. He lost all his wheel covers, and his engine was burning out. Literally, the car started to fall apart. Why? Because he violated design. It wasn't designed for how he was driving it. That's what sin does. Sin is a violation of your design and it slowly breaks you down, right? God holding you together in this world. But after death, right, hell is the place where God removes common grace and you experience the ultimate destination 
of being broken down. When human beings are totaled in hell, they don't stop existing. They just exist torn apart. The second truth Jesus teaches about hell in this parable is that not only is it a place of disintegration, but it's a place of justice. Now, just that phrase, right, sparks a ton of opposition in our culture. The popular view of hell is that it's unfair. The cultural view, it's unfair. And in fact, beyond that, how could a loving God have a place like that? Some of you may ask that question. How could a loving God have a place like that? And yet what we see, and this parable points it out, is that hell is one of the more fair and just doctrines in the Bible. I want you to notice what the rich man says when he opens his mouth in hell. And you will notice that number one, he doesn't ask to get out. Uh, number two, you'll notice he doesn't ask forgiveness. Number three, he doesn't even address God. He addresses Abraham. And then, and then fourth, you'll notice he's still operating as a rich, privileged man with servants. You notice he's still ordering Lazarus around. He's telling Abraham to get Lazarus to come cool his tongue, right? He is still operating as the man who's in control, as the man who's master of his own domain. And then even when you get to verses 27 and 28, when he starts to say, hey, well then send Lazarus to my five brothers. It appears like compassion, which there may be a shred of it. But really what it is, it's blame shifting. You know what he's saying? I didn't have enough information. This is unfair, I shouldn't be here. So at least go give my brothers enough information. This rich man, he, he's not repentant. He doesn't want out. He's master of his own domain. He's still in control. And God in hell removes his common grace and guess what? Lets him go. He lets him go. This rich man in hell belonged to himself and he was falling apart. You know, we oftentimes view hell as, you know, people fall into a pit and once they fall in, they want out and they start climbing out and God's just kind of up top, like stamping them back down. No, you can't, you know, you can't come out. Jesus paints a very different picture here. And what Jesus is effectively saying is that hell, the door of hell is locked from the inside, right? That ultimately those that are there get what they want, which is control of their lives, apart from God, totally free from God. And, and what could be more fair than that? You know, what could be more just than that? See, here's the problem and the danger. You may be living like the rich man, purple linens, fine clothes, sumptuous eating every day. In other words, you may be living a life of comfort, of ease, of goodness, maybe relative wealth. Um, it's just you have a good life. And oftentimes I hear when people experience that, I don't need God. I mean, why would I need God? Look at my life. It's good. Why would I need God? What you don't realize is that you're living off of borrowed capital. And now let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I had a friend who worked a part-time job. This was like his, his side job. And for this part-time job, he got paid a, uh, just a mediocre hourly wage. And um, the accountant of the company that he was working for 
made a mistake and started uh, paying him for four to five times the hours that he actually worked. So he got essentially a 400% pay raise, okay? Now, uh, because it was his side job and because he did direct deposit, he never realized it. But he, all he saw was that, wow, there's just there's more money in my bank account. And so he started living off this more money in his lifestyle, kind of he, he started doing more and eating out more and just, you know, enjoying this extra money that he just didn't realize where it came from. Well, then the accountant found the mistake. And immediately, his, his pay was reduced 400% back to the right amount, the original amount. And he was devastated. And what he didn't realize is that he was, he was living the good life off of money that he didn't earn, that it was a gift. You see, if you're living a good life, if you have a life of relative ease in this world, and you're enjoying it, and you say, I don't need God. The reality is the reason you're living a good life is because of the common grace of God, that he is keeping you intact, that he is the the source of the good life you're living, whether you acknowledge him or not. And hell is the place where God removes his common grace, and that reality comes to fruition. What does hell teach us? You need a new name. You get what you want. And therefore, you need a savior. You need a savior. In verses 29 to 31, Jesus reveals the problem of unbelief. And it's masterful how he does it. Look at the dialogue between uh, the, the rich man and Abraham in verses 29 to 31. Right? The, the rich man says, Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers. They don't have enough information and I don't want them in this place of torment. And, and what, is, uh, what is Abraham's response? No, no, verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, no, they do have information, right? They've got the Old Testament scriptures that speak of sin and death and judgment and a Messiah who's gonna bring salvation. They have that. And so the rich man says, well, okay, if they've got the information, then send them a miraculous sign, somebody that rises from the dead and comes to them, right? Then they'll, they'll be okay. And what does Abraham say? No, verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham says in verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, it's the modern argument. If I had a sign, if I had a miraculous sign, I would believe. If I had been alive in Jesus' day and I, would, and, I, and I saw him face to face, I'd believe. And what does Jesus say? No, you wouldn't. Well, if I was alive in the days of Israel and I was standing at the Red Sea, when God parted the, the waters miraculously, if I was there, I would believe. What does Jesus say? No, you wouldn't. Why? Because unbelief, is not a problem of information or miraculous signs. In other words, your unbelief is not because of something outside of you that you don't have or you're not getting. Unbelief is the result of a deep-seated rebellion in your heart that says, I don't want to submit to God. I wanna run my own life. I wanna be my own Lord and Savior. 
I want to do it. I can do it. I will manage my own life. That's where unbelief comes from. Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 8 says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion is he talking about there? It's in the desert where God's people are hungry. They're starving. They've got Moses the prophet speaking to them. So they've got the information coming from God. They just saw the miracle. God rains down manna from heaven miraculously. They had information, they had miracle, and what did they do? They hardened their hearts. You see, Israel needed a savior, and so do you. You need a savior. You see, if you don't understand the doctrine of hell, you can't really understand God's love, and you certainly can't understand the work of his savior, his son, Jesus Christ. If there is no hell, then Jesus' work on the cross made no sense. Because Jesus suffered on the cross to endure hell for you. And his work on the cross was far worse than the picture we see of this rich man, far worse than any one human being in hell. Why? Because all of the sin of the world, of the entire history of the world, past, present, and future, was compressed into that moment on Jesus. And because of that, sin, your sin, my sin, did its work to destroy Jesus. He was disintegrated. Isaiah 52, 14 says this, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. On the cross, he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? There it is. God removed himself from his son and what was left? Jesus, full of your sin, bearing the weight of your sin, falling apart, disintegrating, enduring hell for you. But then Isaiah 53, verse 11 says this, out of the anguish of his soul, notice, out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, torment, anguish, right? Because he was enduring hell. Out of the anguish of his soul, it says, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It says that out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus was satisfied. Why? Because he saw the result of his suffering. He saw the result of enduring hell. And that is you and me, if you've placed your trust in Christ and Lazarus comforted by his side. You see, you were worth it. That's why he was satisfied out of the anguish of his soul. You were worth it. And unless you see the depths of this suffering, of Jesus enduring hell for you, you'll never understand the depth of his love, the height, the breadth, the length of his love. And so Jesus says to you this morning, he says, if you hear my voice today, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Believe, confess, God, you are my help. And Jesus, you are my savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to endure hell on our behalf. 
And thank you that because of that, we are recipients of your love. And then upon believing that we receive a new name, a new identity that's not dependent on externals and circumstances. It's a new identity rooted in you, Jesus, for eternity. Father, there are those here this morning who have hardened their hearts. And we pray very boldly, Holy Spirit, that you would soften hearts in this room to receive you, Jesus, to receive your suffering on their behalf, that they could receive a new name and an identity that outlasts death, that's not dependent on achievements or wealth or success or anything. And Father, I pray for every person in this room that falls prey to identifying themselves by an occupation or a job or a, a success or achievement that Father, that we would, as your children, identify ourselves as the ones loved by Christ, period. And that, Father, that love that we see would produce a tremendous amount of joy and comfort, that it would give us a core on the inside that outlasts death, and that when we die or when you return, Jesus, that that fullness would erupt into comfort, eternal comfort and eternal joy. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.